today, for life, for your mercy that's new each morning, for the church, for a place for us to come uh, to gather with your people, to hear your word, to be reminded not just of what we need to do, but more importantly of who we are, uh, that we belong to you, that you love us, we are your children, you have given us what we need. And Father, we pray that this morning you would instruct our hearts and minds and uh, that you would encourage us this morning to be faithful in the things you've called us to and to uh, be found in your service all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6. Uh, again, I know that what we're doing here in this uh, repeat uh, of the series, a series on child training, is we're going over familiar territory. I was thinking about this this morning because in Acts 11 for the sermon, uh, and I'll be mentioning this again in the sermon when everybody else is here, but uh, uh, Luke um, tells the story of Cornelius four times uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, He also tells the story of the conversion of Paul four times in one form or another, and that's obvious because he thinks we and others need to hear it four times. And there are many things in the Bible that way that are repeated. And they're repeated because even though we've heard it before, of course, we need to hear it again and again. And and that's partly because uh, while the Word of God is unchanging, we are not. We are changing. Our circumstances change. Our maturity changes. Our perspective changes. And so now when we hear that never-changing Word, because we've changed, we hear it in a new way, we see it in a new way, we have new applications of it, we're either now reflecting in a way we couldn't before, or we're anticipating, or we're in new circumstances, uh, and therefore there are new applications. It is the living Word of God, uh, and it is, uh, and so for that reason, rather than tuning out when I hear something again, I should tune in. I should say, what, what is it that God wants to teach me this time when I hear his word? What are those new nuances and things that perhaps I missed before, that I wasn't ready for? If you, if you ever read a book that you really loved and then went back and reread it, uh, maybe sometimes years later, uh, you pick up things that you didn't before. It's my test of a good movie uh, is I want to see it more than once sometimes many times over a period of years, and I, partly because I do anticipate what's there, and that I liked it the first time, and I want to hear it again, because the first time I heard it, it moved me, and hearing it again, it moves me again. And so, um, but also because I now have the bigger picture uh, and more experience, I can come back, and this time as I go through a story, or a book, or in this case, the Bible, or a subject, a topic, I pick up things that I didn't before because I now have a greater context for it to be in. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Very clear, concise instructions from the Word of God. 
Uh, we'll be looking at uh, a number of those passages just to refresh our memory. And so that's, a, again, very simple and to the point. It's pretty clear what God expects of children, and it's clear what God expects of parents. But what I want us to not lose sight of is when we start talking about the expectations of God, just like we talk about the expectations, say, of parents, of their children, that can become a, a set of rules and do's and don'ts, and uh, it can become a very legalistic kind of thing that really can become quite oppressive. Uh, we are to never lose sight, and I think that's why the warning there to fathers to not provoke your children to wrath uh, you have a job to do, and it does involve insisting on things and having a high standard, but the temptation can be that we do it in a manner that is harsh or does not, in the end, win the hearts of our children, which is the goal. And so it's, it's not just what we do. In fact, I would suggest how we do it might be more important if I had to weigh them uh, how we do things might be more important than whether we get every little detail right in terms of the what. Um, though, as always, both are uh, is what we're shooting for. We want to do what God says to do, and we don't want to do what he says not to do, and we want to do it or not do it in the way, in the manner he says to do it. And I'm going to just take up where we left off last time talking about family culture. And again, we're still kind of laying the foundation here because foundations are important. We get ahead of and we don't have a foundation, then the house falls. And so I always think understanding theology, understanding what we're doing, why we're doing it, what's the big picture uh, is very critical for us before we get into the details of how do I handle this situation or that situation. Since a family... Uh, is an inescapable culture, and in, by inescapable we mean it, you, everybody has a culture. The only question left is, what kind of culture will it be? And a culture uh, includes everything we do. It's how we talk to each other, it's the dinner table, it's how we keep house, it's how we entertain guests, it's how we uh, our routine for bedtime, it's uh, our attitudes. I mean, we can't, there's nothing we can really leave out of what we call culture. The flavor of your house. You are molding and shaping your children. And that's what we do, for example, in the church with the liturgy. There's a, there's a pattern here and a practice. And we come before God and we confess our sins and we receive absolution and we sing and we give thanks and we give of our money and we sit under a sermon, and we come to the Lord's table. And I know I'm leaving some details out, but the reason we do this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is the purpose of the liturgy is to shape us, to change us, to conform us, so that when we go out the door, we do all those things all the time. And we come back and we practice again over and over and over. It's not, and I, somebody brought up the idea of when I say practice, that doesn't mean that this is... The, that what we're doing here is the unimportant thing and what we're doing there is they're both essential. In order to live, we must do this. In order for your family to function, you have to have structure. You have to, and the more you think about your culture, one of the things I do with in premarital counseling is, again, I talk to young couples as they're preparing to get married, and I say, you need to think about what you want your family to be like, this new household. What, what is the flavor of it? What, is it? what are some things you want to establish? What are some things you want to avoid? 
Let's put them down on a piece of paper. Let's, let's each of you come up with five things you want to avoid and five things you want to establish. How are you going to do that? What's the plan? What are the habits? What are the things you can do to be sure these things become your, the, the definition of who you are as a family? So, of course, we have to have a standard. And that, so we're going to either, you're going to either mold your children self-consciously and actively or else mindlessly and passively. It's going to happen whether you think about it or not. So thinking about it is better than not thinking about it. Having a plan is better than no plan because it's going to happen either way. What, by what standard? Even when families are unaware of the culture of their households, when they're unaware of a standard, then that becomes the culture. That becomes the standard, that lack of awareness, that inconsistency. The standard's all over the place, perhaps. But the Bible says that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that means if that's to be true of me personally, then, of course, that's to be true of my family. And if our minds are not renewed when it comes to the subject of child-rearing, and unless a true Christian, distinctively Christian culture is established in the home, then we will never, ever see a Christian culture anywhere else. You want a Christian culture out there, it's got to start at your house. Uh, The culture out there can't rise above that. And so um, no one ever drifted into godliness. That just doesn't happen. It goes, we're swimming upstream with a sinful nature. And so if we're going to do something different, it's going to take a charted course. Thus, uh, the many unchristian assumptions about the home have to be replaced with Christian assumptions. Um, many parents are fearful of or reluctant to assume the full responsibility of providing for the culture and nurture of their children. How often I've run into parents, uh, both in but often outside the church, that tell me, oh, I've got this child or I've got this situation, and I don't know what to do. I can't make them do this or do that. And there's a hopeless, uh, uh, there's a sense that I have no power, no ability, no authority. It's just overwhelming me. And again, I think that comes first from a lack of understanding of what God has given you, if that's the case. God lays the responsibility at our feet when when he gives us our children. We are called to build maintain a culture in our home through what? What are some of the things we use to build a culture? Rules? Routine, which is liturgy, what? Tradition, which is habit, right? Money, you have to spend some money to make this happen, that's right. Um... What else? Attitude. That helps, that builds a culture. Teaching. You got to, you have rules. You got to also communicate those. How about discipline? You have to enforce the standards, right? Um, prayer. 
part of the culture? Reading Scripture? How about laughter? Joy? How about we look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, I want these to be the qualities of the culture of our house. Love, joy, peace, patience. Yeah, Rick. Example. That's what training is. It's not just, it's not just telling, but showing. I've said, I had a boss years ago and I, you know, being the young, uh, I think I was all of 22 or so, uh, made that, you know, uh, cliched statement. Don't ask anybody to do anything you're not willing to do. And he corrected me very quickly. He says, no, don't ask anyone to do anything they haven't seen you do. And I think that's a kind of a good reminder that training is me showing, modeling for my children what godliness looks like. Um, my best friend uh, in high school, who was my best man in uh, my wedding, his father was one of my mentors, uh, Southern Baptist evangelist. Uh, but I remember Tim saying the thing that finally that God really got a hold of his heart. He says, I, w- I was about 14, and they had a split-level house, and Tim's bedroom was up here, and he, he come down a few steps, and then there was a basement, and then the main floor was in between. He said, for about four mornings in a row, I would wake up about five in the morning and needed to use the restroom. Um, and he said, I, I believe God was getting me up. Because as I would get up and come out down those little steps to go where the restroom was, I would hear something in the basement. And I would walk down those steps quietly. And there was my father on his knees praying. And I knew that my dad was a preacher. And I knew praying was what preachers do. But I knew that getting up early in the morning and praying for me was not part of his job. It was something he was doing because it was real. And he said, God used that to awaken me, one of the many things he used. Um, So there was a case where his father didn't even know that his son was watching. Uh, So God, but the thing to remember what parents, how how often are your children watching you? All the time, right? What's that? More than you think, and, and even when you think they're not, uh, they don't always listen. <laughs> they don't always, you know, pay attention in the direct sense, but uh, they, they pay attention to a lot more than we realize. So you're always teaching. I remember teaching seventh grade one year, uh, which was quite the experience for me. Um, that's a... Anybody who can do that has a unique gift. Um, but I had a little boy in there. His name was Chris. And uh, so I had like, I don't know, four or five boys, four or five girls. And I was teaching Old Testament. And Chris could never stay in his chair. Um, he just constant movement. And so I had put up on the board a chart. I think it was the kings of Israel or something. I said, all right, you've got 10 minutes uh, before the bell rings. I want you to work on memorizing this chart. Just sit in your desk, memorize the chart. So four or five minutes go by, and I look up, and I think Chris was under his desk at that point. And I said, Chris, have you memorized this chart? He said, yes, sir. And I walked up, and I erased it off the board. I said, come up here and put it on the board. I thought, man, I really got him. He walked up there and nailed it. (laughs) 
So I don't know when Chris learned that. Uh, somewhere between being in his seat and being under his seat. But he was paying more attention than I thought. So um, our homes should be the best place on earth, even with their problems. Fathers and then mothers then must understand the biblical vision and then move to establish, build, and maintain this essential culture. And so, again, we're not just talking about the outward moral behavior, but also their hearts. Uh, Perhaps we don't think about this as parents, but when God gives us children and places them with us to raise them, we assume a duty that carries the utmost importance. Uh, And so the greatest of care has to be given to this labor, both in the planning and the execution, because Jesus warns us not to cause a child to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. R.L. Dabney said that when a man and a woman have a child, quote, they have kindled a spark that can never be put out. That child, blessed or cursed, will exist forever and ever. Some parents neglect their children by ignoring them, others by indulging them. Both kinds of neglect really indicate selfish parents, and both kinds of neglect harm children. We should be servants to our children, but we shouldn't cater to our children. It is helpful to remember that, in fact, we are raising adults. I was reminded this week when I put together a list of quotes from uh, P.J. O'Rourke. He said, uh, it used to be thought that children should behave like little adults. And he said, like many things that used to be thought, this is true. So uh, uh, that is what we're doing, raising, not children, we're raising adults. We have children, but we're raising adults. And so uh, we need to turn to God's Word, relying on His grace and Spirit to instruct us. Sometimes we, we have in mind that I'm supposed to be instructing them, but we forget that we're being instructed. And unless we've been instructed, we're not in a position to do much instructing, and that we're to trust the Lord to prosper our labors for his glory and for the good of the children. So, some other theological foundations. Remember, theology is, we just want to think the way God thinks about whatever subject we're talking about. And so, before we can have any hope of successfully raising children, we must first lay the theological foundation for the family. Uh, It's the family that provides the environment, the system, the culture, as we've said, which produces not only children but eventually adults. Uh, Since the days of Adam and Eve, uh, we've been filling the earth with offspring, but, of course, it's not just any kind of offspring that we want to fill the earth with. Procreation is the easy part. Uh, Dogs, cats, and rats can do that. Um, So uh, we want to raise it quite a bit. In most cases... In most cases, new babies are cute, they're exciting, they fill us with hope, um, little images of God, but they are broken images of God placed in our care uh, to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So God first creates marriage, and that is interesting, like we go back to Ephesians, I read from Ephesians 6, but what's chapter 5 about? Marriage, husbands and wives. So before we get to what we're going to do with the children, 
the right relationship between husband and wife is critical here. They were designed to be an extension of, I believe, the triune God's uh, eternal loving communion. And the goal was to extend that community and that glory throughout the earth. Man and woman, woman were made and called to exercise dominion, to rule over the earth, and they were to use their minds to order and tend the world. And moreover, by way of their sexuality, this man and woman were to become one flesh and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more and more God-glorifying beings. So there's an ever-expanding communion of love. His mandate called for both quantity, fill the earth, and quality. As we're going to see in Malachi, he said, I didn't want just children, I wanted godly children, godly offspring. So under the direction and protection of God's covenant, paradise would grow into an ever-expanding, loving community or communion. God's true and everlasting word provided the foundation for families to flourish. It set boundaries. It um, defined roles. And it identified the goals. In other words, it had a covenantal structure. God says, I'm creating the family Here's what I want the man to do. Here's what I want the woman to do. Here's what the children do. And this is all designed when done, as I've directed, to bring about blessing, to bring about love, to bring about selflessness and joy, and then to, to, to expand that. And so, uh, of course, a lack of faith, which led to obedience or sin, wrecked all of this. And the gospel, because it deals with sin, begins to restore paradise. Now, all of us who've had families know that we've had sin, we've had failures, we've had disappointments and discouragements. But I want to say a word of encouragement to everybody here, uh, because I know most of you pretty well, and I know that you love Jesus, and he loves you. And I know that however tough you've had it, whatever challenges you've had, and you're still here, so God's not through with you yet. Um, he's also blessed you in many, many ways. And this is a long story, not a short story. And so uh, the point here is that we come back to him over and over. He's a loving father. We, we go to him for strength and encouragement. And he has blessed us. In fact, if we think about it, if I think about it very much, uh, if I were to just add up all my all the things I did well and all the things I did not so well or less than perfect, which is almost everything, by the way, then I ought to have utter disaster everywhere. So wherever there's blessing, wherever there's prosperity, wherever there's good fruit that's that's either beginning or I have a hope of uh, in myself, in my marriage, or in my children or my grandchildren. Uh, that's God. I think, I think the parable of the loaves and fishes is when I, when I think of this, that God just takes these less than adequate things that we have and he can take those things and do incredible things with them. So we are blessed. And, uh, sometimes we don't see that because if you're like me, I see whatever difficult thing is right in front of me and I forget to see all the other things that God's been doing and is doing. And I, by the way, as a pastor, that's true when I think about 
38 years of pastoring, it's the same way. So if somebody asked me, Pastor, have you been successful? I don't know how to answer that. What's the measure? Um, yes and no. There's, there have been some really great things that are encouraging, and there's been some really discouraging things. And I don't even know how to put all those in a balance. Thankfully, I don't have to. You know, I have to come back and say, God called me to go do what he called me to do, and he knew, and by the way, he knows this about you too, he knows that you're broken and inadequate and you're not just like Jesus yet, and he knows all of that and he still gave you the job to do. And he still loves you. So um, don't allow yourself, as I'm tempted to do, get into a pity party and um, feeling sorry for myself because I hadn't done enough. And it, it becomes about me. And God says, you know, it's never been about you. I knew you were broken when I called you. Paul, Paul himself says, who's adequate for this? We're called to be, Paul, called to be ministers. Who is adequate for this? Not us. But God has made us adequate. He fills us. He takes Nothing and makes it something. So let me come back here, back to the foundational things here. Great parenting begins with a great marriage. And a great marriage begins with the gospel. It begins with a sacrificing husband as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Men, you represent Jesus and like the church is to him, your wife is to be the most important person in your life. Wives, you represent the church, and like the church is to Jesus, you are to honor and respect your husband. Children are a gift from the Lord to parents. And when a child is brought to the church, that is to the body of Christ, for baptism, the parents are what? Handing that child over to Christ, saying, this child belongs to you. And that child receives in baptism the name of the triune God. And there are pledges made by parents to say, we, yes, intend to follow Jesus in the raising of this child. And the minister representing Christ hands the child back to the parents and basically says, may God's blessings be upon you as you go and do those things God's given you to do. And he will bring about the result After the administration of baptism, then Jesus hands that child back. Of course, if you're going to train your children to be godly men and women, then of course you've got to be godly. A husband and wife that love God and love each other is the single most important thing you can give your children. Everything else pales way or goes way down the list of importance. Poor people can love God and love each other and give their children a rich inheritance, and rich people can rob their children of anything of ultimate value. It's not about money. It's not about your house or your car or where they went to school. Um, It's not about whether uh, they had all the nice stuff or not. Um, 
And, and again, if we could just get that, I'm I, I, I just thinking about what God said to Samuel about Eliab when he sees Eliab. Surely this must be the Lord's anointed. Nope. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside. And I think sometimes we think, I'm going to give my, if I say, what do you want to give your children? And we usually say, like, we want to give them a good education, we want to give them a good place to live, and, and you know, clothes and food. And, and, of course, certainly we want to provide for their basic human needs. But if we, don't, if we give them all of that and we don't give them Christ, and we don't give them a mom and a dad that love each other, then we have failed. We think, again, it's about having little obedient omatrons, uh, I'm not using the right word, little robots, okay, that are very tidy and obedient and don't get out of line and don't embarrass us in front of other people. That's you know the main thing we don't want them to do. No. Life is messy. Life is more complicated than that. And I'm, I'm just kind of, again, doing a little extemporaneous things here, but uh, you've heard me say these kinds of things before, but if, if at the end of your week all you've had is tears and shouting, you're missing the point. There are going to be tears, but there ought to be a lot of joy at the end of every week or you're doing something wrong. And that means it starts with husband and wife. That means your kids should see you loving each other, being affectionate, talking to each other, having conversation, showing interest, helping one another. All the ways we show love is by serving one another. Um, Children are a gift from the Lord. So, all right, of course, you're going to train your children to be godly men and women, then you're going to have to be godly. A husband and wife that love God, love each other, living in the context of other Christian people, living in a community, in the church, armed with the Bible and prayer, that's all you need to raise godly children. And so in one sense it's simple, but it's certainly not easy. For starters, some of you women will probably say, well, my husband ain't Jesus. Um, You might not say ain't, but uh, I'm sure he could add his own rejoinder to that. Um, And some are single parents. In other words, we're broken, and so is the system. But knowing and inculcating God's Word is central. And I'm not going to take the time to read Deuteronomy 6 again, but you know it. Okay, You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you're to teach your children diligently to do the same when you rise up and you lie down, when you walk in the way, and so forth. That's to be the culture of your house. So I want us to pause for a moment and consider when we think about Deuteronomy 6, we've been over that many times, uh, do you tune that out because you heard it so many times or do you tune it in and take it to heart? I'm I'm not aware of any homes where this actually is practiced where there are significant problems over the long haul with children. This... Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, summarizes in 236 English words all that you need to be successful. Seriously. The mission. Um, Husbands, 
Covenant heads are responsible to carry out God's plan for the household to accomplish the mission. That mission includes affection, sacrifice, provision, protection, instruction, discipline, and anything else that will ultimately produce a godly household and godly children. That is why you're here. Everything you do, this is going to be true for the wife as well. Remember, your house is a place of loving communion, and everything you do, your job, uh, you know, your chores, cooking dinner, making love, having people over, uh, tucking people in for bed, family worship, keep on. There's nothing we would leave out here. Every bit of that is to contribute to your household being a place of loving communion. And every one of those things can turn your house into a hellhole. Because sin gets in the way. And you can have a a big fight over dinner. Or who's going to take the trash out. And your whole communion and community can be disrupted over things. And there are real sins. There are real sins that happen. And that's why there is repentance and forgiveness. And when we say we've forgiven, we drop it. It's over. We move on. Was I hurt? Yeah, I was hurt. Or you were hurt. That's what sin does. It hurts people. It really does. But Jesus taught us that there is a way to deal with sin. And we are to forgive one another the way Christ forgave us. That's how we move through this. Everyone in your house sins a lot under the best of conditions. But the mission is to get to where God's called us. And we're going to have these things that sidetrack us, that explode. And then we've got to put it back together. The word husband provides an agrarian image. We speak of animal husbandry or the husbandman of the vineyard. And Proverbs 24, 30-34, we have a picture of what happens, and we've got a world full of this, of husbands who abdicate this. And I want to emphasize again, we're talking about the marriage relationship primarily. You cannot get to the place of doing what you need to do with children if the foundational relationship is not where it needs to be. I went by a field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was all overgrown with thorns. By the way, I have an image here because it reminds me of somebody I knew many, many years ago of, of this story. The lazy man, he has a vineyard, devoid of understanding, but I have a picture of this guy sitting on the front porch with a book that he's reading about raising grapes. And every now and then he barks a few orders to his wife who's out there in the field, uh, maybe cultivating the vineyard, or to his kids, tells them to shut up, he's trying to read. And so he's... He's this guy. He's void. He doesn't get the point. He's missing the point. He's an expert on on a vineyard. If you if you could just sit on the porch with him for about five hours, he could tell you how it's supposed to be done. 
It was all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. There I go. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. All you got to do is nothing. The wife is called to operate in submission to her husband. His mission is the building of a godly household. Her submission is to help him accomplish the mission. This is a dance, not a march. The two should work in harmony to the glory of God. As the prophet Malachi said, referring to husbands and wives, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with his wife. Now, you see the connection there? You want to raise godly offspring? Then it starts with you treating your wife the way you're supposed to treat her. She is your wife by covenant, the wife of your youth. You're to delight in her. And you can't give me godly offspring if you're not doing that. So the redeemed covenant household is the place where when it comes to the various family relationships of husband, father, wife, mother, and child, God's word is the defining standard. And it's not just for everybody else. It starts with me. He, God, sets the terms of the family relationships, the hierarchy. The father pledges himself to diligently study God's word, to diligently teach his household. He sets out to purposely know and apply God's covenant terms to the household, reaping the full blessings of that relationship with God and his family. And to the degree that the members of the family are instructed and it conforms to the teaching of God's word as it's given to the household, God's gracious blessings can be expected, even the blessing of salvation. These promised household blessings for covenant-keeping families extend beyond the immediate family. So if, if you've got a household that's fundamentally doing this, then all the other people in the world that come into contact with them are going to be blessed. Your children are going to be a joy to be around. Your family is going to start to impact and influence other families. The faithful household then in the context of the church, is God's primary means of bringing redemption to its full bloom or full-blown glory. Our children are the link between us and the next thousand generations. The covenant household is an institution of redemption. Um, You've heard me say this before. I I, I should stop saying that because everything I'm saying you've heard me say before. When God called Abraham, I thought about it the other day. God, when God called Abraham out of Ur, Hebrews tells us that Abraham didn't know where he was going. <laughs> you ever feel that way? God's called me, and I'm not sure where he's taking me. I'm not sure where we're going. Abraham didn't know, but he followed. And then God says in Genesis 18, am I going to tell Abraham what I'm doing? That was a rhetorical question. He said, yeah. 
Abraham, I want you to, you know, can you imagine? He's already told Abraham in chapter 12, I'm going to bless you and bless your children. I'm going to bless, you know, the world through you. And Abraham, who has no children, uh, can you imagine what he's thinking? How are you going to do this? If I tell you right now, God is going to bless the world through you and through your children, and you look at the world the way it is now, how's that going to happen? Do you think Abraham imagined that we would be sitting here as his descendants? Well, in some sense, he did. He believed God, and God counted his righteousness. He saw Christ's day, and he rejoiced. He saw a city that God was building. And so God says, Abraham, here's your part. I want you to go home. And I want you to command your household to keep the way of the Lord, to follow the Lord, to do righteousness and justice so that I, the Lord, can bring all this to pass. What? Blessing the nations. Your job, go home. My job, God says, bless the nations. Through you. I'll take you. I'll take those loaves and fishes, and I'll feed the world. But that starts with you going home. So that's where Abraham goes. And that's where you're to go. That's where I'm to go. And with eyes of faith, we see, look, I don't know how... I don't know where the church is going to be 2,000 years from now. And you don't either. Except that I do know this. It'll still be, if, if the earth's still here in 2,000 years, the church will still be here. And it's got some maturing and growing to do. But God's called us to occupy this time, this territory, and to be faithful where he's put us right now in this redemptive story. Thankfully, there were a whole bunch of people ahead of us that did the same thing. Imperfectly. But they did it. Any comment before we end? I'm just going as far as we run out until we run out of time and then we'll start again. Anybody? All right, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We most of all thank you for your love and grace toward us because we hear these things and we can be overwhelmed and feel discouraged at times. Lord, we're thankful to know that it is your work, that you take imperfect vessels like us and that you're at work in us to train us, to teach us, to mold us, to build a culture in us. Help us to delight in the gift of the church that helps us with that. That helps us learn about you, to be disciplined, to create habits of worship and honor and praise. Bless every parent here uh, and every future parent that will uh, be engaged in this most important work. Bless us now as we come together to rejoice in, in, in you and to worship you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.